Today is March 7th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Russell Poldrak. He's a professor of psychology and neurobiology and director of the Imaging Research Center at UT Austin. His lab is concerned with cognitive and neural mechanisms of learning and memory, decision making, and executive control in normal and psychiatric patients. Hi, Russell. Hi. <laughs> nice to have you here. Um, around the room, we've got Todd Schroeder. Hello. We've got Fidel. So Hi. Hi. It's on the And we've got Nicole. Hey. Hey. So um, I'm going to go through my list of things that I want to talk about, and you guys can ignore them or not. But I, I wanted to get to a couple of things. So first, um, you and others have written critically about the use of uh, functional MRI and cognitive neuroscience. Um, so can you walk us through your ideas about the way the technique has been used and maybe misused, uh, and how the toolbox of robust statistics and engineering methods that, that you and others are using are maybe allowing us to mine a whole new um, set of questions about cognitive variables and mental states. So that's one thing I was kind of hoping you guys could talk about. Um, and related and, and more general, um, just about how ideas about structure and function are evolving in cognitive neuroscience. Are we... Um, getting closer to resolving a kind of a meta framework for um, the relationship between neural activity and mental states. And how do we resolve any idea of normative brain function when um, we've got so much individual variability and performance, genetics, development, history, um, you know. Uh, and then the last thing, just keeping in the realm of genetics, I thought you might talk about um, genomics and cognitive function and um, the idea that cognitive phenotypes can somehow be defined and um, maybe associated with genomic and disease data and a kind of phenomic genomic take on the brain. So I know that's a ton. So I don't know where you want to get started, but I thought first, so some of the methodological yeah, issues. Well, actually, I want to start in the middle. Okay. Um, because it's, you brought this point about how, about individual differences, right? And it's, it's funny that FRI works at all. Because it requires that everybody's brain has to look similar enough that when we do our fuzzy, you know, registration and bring them together, that similar enough stuff is in similar enough places that they average out to actually show us something consistent across people. So you know, I've always thought that FMRI is actually suggesting that individual differences are, at least with respect to brain function, are actually a lot less than you would expect, at least with respect to the global geography. I think that where they come out is in differences in the relative levels of lots of different stuff. And, and probably also in, you know, if, um, sort of thinking about how genetics might uh, play a role. Um, if you have kind of very broad um, regulatory things going on that are going to affect lots of different systems, um, those might be the kind of things that I think are driving differences between people more than differences in kind of the organization of what lives where. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I have how I have viewed, you know, how we should think about individual differences, um, because it's, uh, it's always, it's always struck me that, that I think most, most people have a, a view that the brains of different people would be a lot more different than they actually are, at least in terms of functional organization. But, um, isn't that because, I mean, I don't know too much about, um, this, but, but, um, isn't it because when, when fMRI, um, uh, came into play, right, there was this, um, what we needed to do, what people needed to do was to have very high thresholds, you know, to 
they'll look at the all the variability that was uh, to in order to extract a, a stable signal, right? Those methods are still there, mm -hmm. and 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 they have been successful in like showing that yeah, I mean, people watching the same movie, right? Like the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's that was a science paper a few years ago. They see the same areas light up uh, when the same. Uh, actions are taking place, right? But um, this thing with uh, genomics maybe is the stuff that is below the threshold that we see that is variable in the in, in the individual, right? Uh, is the one that is going to correlate uh, with uh, the genomics of, or proteomics, right, uh, of, of of the population? Um, that's a reasonable hypothesis. I mean, you know, um, I. I don't know of much evidence to, that would lead me to expect it to actually work that way. In part because you know when we when we look at um, so I let me step back. I agree that you're right in the sense that the methods kind of make us only find the stuff that's consistent across people. What's a little bit surprising is that there's anything there at all, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah. um, it has to be relatively consistent for you to find that stuff. I think the, the things that I'm that I'm more struck by is you know you often get questions about. How do uh, you know how do men and women differ? Or you know, if, if you're studying language, how do people who cross who speak different languages differ? And it's been astoundingly hard to find robust differences in brain functional organization between speakers of very different languages or between men and women. Um, you know, so the things that people I think intuitively think would be big differences just aren't there. But I think you know you're you're probably right that the that at least part of the variability is going to be sort of in in signatures that we can't see with the kind of methods that are kind of standardly used that just look at, yeah, sort of average activation overall. That, and, it, you know, one place to look would be those places that are kind of sub-threshold. Another place to look would be differences in the combination of things, the, the degree to which they talk to one another, the connectivity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of people have placed bets on that being the place where a lot of the individual differences are going to come out. The idea that, you know, everybody has these big systems that kind of do, you know, basic psychological functions, how they work together, how they combine um, is going to be, you know, where a lot of these things start to, uh, start to differ across people. Is that where the, the default mode uh, network, uh, default, what's it called? Default mode network, mode network <laughs> comes into play, but I mean, this has been, Kind of a recent argument that it's you know it's these baseline differences that really drive individual. Tell us about the default. So the default mode network is uh, it's an idea that uh, Mark Rakel put out about ten years ago now, and it came about because um, it was actually discovered because everybody knew this, but nobody sort of I think put it together. Um, when you have people do a difficult task, it doesn't really matter what the difficult task is. There's a set of brain regions that always turn down for that task compared to when you're just sitting there doing nothing. Um, it's a set of midline regions like ventromedial, prefrontal, posterior, cingulate, usually some lateral, sort of like temporal parietal, inferior parietal regions, sometimes hippocampus. These areas that turn down when you do something difficult, turn back up when you're not. Um, what's been discovered once people started looking at resting state activity of functional MRI is that if you look at resting state fluctuations and the correlations between those fluctuations, that network shows really big sort of correlated fluctuations during rest. Um, and there's a, there's a whole argument that's been made of that, um, that that's based on their sort of oxygen extraction fraction and other stuff that's been measured by Rachel that, uh, that that set of brain regions is kind of like the, 
it, it's the, the set of brain regions that's turned on when you're not doing anything else, right? That it's the default mode in the sense that, you know, your brain is kind of waiting for stuff to, to come in from the outside or, you know, for things to be generated from the inside. When you're not doing anything else, that's the brain system that turns on. So how much, how, is there a, uh, this must be known at least in primates, whether that's, uh, is that the same, is this a default mode network in, uh, yes. in primates? What about as you go further down? Is it, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know how far down you can go. Certainly in, uh, in for example, macaques, it's been shown, um, that they show this, these kind of fluctuations, even in anesthetized animals. So it's clearly not just, um, it's not just about, you know, sort of self-directed thought um, or something like that. It looks different in anesthetized animals and, and anesthetized humans than it does in awake animals and humans. But a lot of the same stuff is still there, um, and at least the same fluctuations are there. So part of, you know, we think that part of the, the fluctuations at rest just reflect the fact that these networks are connected to one another, you know, via plasticity and just random fluctuations in, you know, firing cause them to move together over time. Um so, you know, my guess is that any mammal is going to have that sort of thing going on. What it means cognitively is a really interesting question that I don't think anybody has a good handle on. So the power structure on the EEG in rest, in, during rest is that like, is it like a 1 over F of uh, power structure? Yeah, I mean, all these things about, I mean, the emergence of the 1 over F of um, power spectrum relationship in EEG is because the idea, I think, my understanding is that it's because there, 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 there's this emergence of connectivity, right? And you have large networks connected across the brain and they're like, you have a bunch of oscillators, right? All interconnected at different frequencies, right? And that's happened. And then you see this power law relationship. And, um, but I don't know too much. I mean, uh, I mean, when, when they measure it, if it, if it is at rest, but I, I know that it, like at least in um, REM, it changes the slope of, it's not completely one over F, it has a specific slope. Can we go back to my sort of original question no. about the early, sort of early use of FMR as a, a really sort of focusing on spatial localization and function, mean activation, all that. Can you sort of talk us through so what are, what's happening now? What what uh, what are the new kinds of questions that you can now ask with FFR right. using sort of these rigorous quantitative, robust statistical methods that you're using? Sure. Yeah. So right. So when I started doing FMRI around 1995 or so, right, all of our experiments were what lights up, and we could look at what changes in what lights up. For example, if I turn on something, right, blobology, blob exactly, <laughs> um, and you know you would you would hope that you had hypotheses that would tell you something about where we're expecting to light up. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in some cases, if you don't have anything to expect, you just do the experiment and, uh, look at where the blobs happen and kind of go from there. Um, I think that a couple of things that have really changed are, um, one, the focus on connectivity. So that people have been talking about connectivity since, you know, imaging started, at least since fMRI started, but, um, most people haven't been using connectivity analyses until probably, you know, the last, certainly the last 10 years, probably the last five years, it's become really common to see them. Um, so where are these methods coming from? These are, these are sort of engineering approaches, um, machine learning type They're pattern. coming from all over the place, yeah. So, for example, um, yeah, I mean, some of it is just simple correlation techniques, which, you know, just come from basic statistics, but... Other stuff, um, so, for example, the BaseNet tools that have become pretty popular because they've been shown to be 
probably amongst the most effective tools for estimating interactions between regions out of fMRI data. Um, those come from the machine learning field. Um, Granger causality, which turns out to be a, a badly broken method, but unfortunately people still use it. Um, that comes from econometrics. So there's a lot of different you know, tools from different places. Um, and I think the field is at a place now where you know, people have been trying lots of different tools and you know, it's sort of been, a, you know, people try to establish their place in the, in the field by, you know, having their tool be the one that everyone's going to use. There have now been enough sort of big shootouts, I think, of methods, and there's a good enough test bed, at least of simulated data, that things can be tested against that we're converging towards a set of tools that where at least we, we know, you know, what the, what the relative strengths are of a lot of different tools. We, I think we can say pretty confidently right now that these, um, that the BaseNet tools are, for example, the best ones for, um, for estimating causal interactions between regions out of, out of fMRI data. Um, there's probably other tools that are going to be better for EEG and MEG data. Um, but, uh, but I think that we're, the field still has yet to converge on exactly you know, what the right methods are for particular questions and how to, um, and how to use those in a way that, that we can be certain that they're validated. Um, and there's other methods, like, for example, um, psychophysiological interaction or PPI is a method that gets used really broadly right now. Um, and I think there are a number of people in the field who have the feeling that there's probably some big problems with it, um, but those are yet to really surface um, in sort of papers. And so I think that things are still going to change where things, you know, methods that we probably think are completely acceptable now, five, ten years from now, we're going to wonder how we ever thought they were okay. So is it being used as a, as a diagnostic tool more now? Is it just as sort of a, can you predict things about... Um, right. So there's a there's another set of methods that have become really popular, which are the ones that have come from machine learning that lets you do classification, prediction, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, and those are certainly being used a ton to try to um, you know predict uh, either predict behavior, decode behavior. So for example, can I predict what you're going to do a moment from now? Um, can I uh, decode you know what you're seeing, what you're thinking? based on your brain activity patterns, can I detect, you know, some kind of pathology? Can I predict whether you're going to commit a crime, you know, next year? There's all kinds of questions people want to be able to ask. How, how well they've been asked so far is an open question. I mean, I think that the methods that people have brought forward from machine learning are really they're incredibly powerful. And there certainly is, you know, a, certainly a lot more predictive power of fMRI data than I would have ever expected. Um, but there have to be some limits, and a lot of those are probably just going to be the limits both of the resolution of, um, of fMRI, but probably more fundamentally the resolution of the blood flow mechanism that we're imaging with fMRI. That even if we could, even if we could image you know much faster and much higher spatial resolution using bold fMRI, we're still stuck with the fact that it's bold fMRI. Yes, it's a slow. It's a slow and it's a spatially diffuse uh, mechanism. So one thing that in, in, in hearing what you're saying about methodology, and I know that um, in my experience, was, um, my attempts at trying to go into the FMI field, every time I tried to go in, there was a new way of analyzing data, and then this and then AFNI and then that, and then, you know, it was just constantly changing. Yeah. And and one thing that, I, that I've always wondered is, what do you do now with data from previous exactly. years? I mean, can you even compare them? Can you yeah. just disregard everything is done? No, I think, I mean, that's a really good question. It turns out that um, 
what matters more for that is really um, how the acquisition has changed. Um, and even though there's, there's this is actually a really exciting time in the sense that there's new acquisition schemes being developed that, such that we could suddenly image five times faster. Like we could suddenly image eight times faster than we could two years ago because of some new techniques that have been developed, which are basically just smart software for the scanner, like multiband imaging. Um, but um, that so, said, so, it's not, so that timing is not constrained by the, the actual magnet and the, the changes in the magnetic field? No, the timing is constrained by how smart the physicist is, basically. <laughs> um, and physicists have come up with some really smart ideas. Uh -huh. So, um, for, for sort of ultra-fast fMRI. Um, that said, you know, the, the data that we were collecting 10 years ago uh, when I started at UCLA are still perfectly usable. In fact, so I have a project called openfMRI.org, which mm -hmm. is a data-sharing project. And we have some data sets on there. So what we do is we... We bring all the data together, we process them in exactly the same way, uh, but they were collected on different scanners you know, at various points in time. We had data sets on there that were collected in 2000 um, that we can still analyze and are perfectly reasonable data sets to analyze. Um, and so I think that you know, this is going to start changing more now that um, the technology for, um, for image acquisition has really, is really starting to, to move forward quickly. For a long time there, we were kind of stuck at, you know, Two millimeter, three millimeter resolution, two second repetition time, um, and suddenly that's that's getting different. But you know, we can still do a lot with those older data. So, what is that timing now? So, uh, you can there are there are always trade offs. Yeah. Uh, but you can get whole brain images certainly in half a second easily um, at two point something millimeter resolution. We just did a study where we got almost whole brain. Two millimeter resolution in one point three seconds, I think. And this is using the same Tesla. Yes, this is all a three T scanner. It's all about tricks in the acquisition, mm -hmm. yeah. and it's gonna. I mean, there are there are probably gonna be ways. In fact, I think there already are ways to do whole brain imaging in say hundred milliseconds at reasonable spatial resolution. But a lot of them um, require reconstruction tricks that are subject to artifacts. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and it isn't worked out yet, but it's an area that's moving really fast right now. Suddenly, you know, for, for a long time, it was about like coil development, you know, moving from single channel to eight channels, to 32 channels. Now, you know, all the scanners have 32 channels and suddenly part, actually part of, I think what's this development of new acquisition techniques is taking advantage of the fact that everybody has 32 channels now, because a lot of them are using parallel imaging in kind of new and interesting ways. So does that change what, um, uh, is that going to filter into to experimental design? Because most of these are, you know, you have some baseline, you have to have some baseline thing. And if you can collect a lot more data, you can compare multi-condition uh, kind of multivariate things instead of these simple, the design can be much more complicated, or at least potentially. I, I think the short answer is probably not. And the reason is that even though we're imaging so much faster with such higher spatial resolution, um, we're still stuck with the fact that it's the bold mechanism that we're imaging. It's slow, and so you're still going to have to ensure that you can deconvolve whatever things you want to deconvolve. Now, you can do a better job of that when you're collecting data a lot faster because you can, you know, kind of do a better job of actually modeling the time course. But in the end, you can't get rid of the fact that bold is a slow mechanism. Yeah, but what about, like, in terms of just the, uh, the variety that you can get 
in an say in an experimental uh, session with a uh, subject. Uh, I mean, can you put them in more con- more conditions? And I guess it doesn't really translate um, that way. I mean, it could in the sense that you you're going to gain incrementally some statistical power from um, from imaging faster, uh, right, from getting more data. Um, how you use that statistical power is uh, is up to you, right? You can use it to present more stimuli, right, and make up for the fact that things are going to be crammed in a bit more so you get less power for each one. Um, you could use the image for less time. Yeah, so there's, there's various ways you could use that power. I think that would be one of them. But it's not going to be revolutionary, I don't think. Do you think it eventually you'd be able to map electrophysiology to the data? Um, you would need a marker. So people have been working on this. Yeah. There have been a lot of people working on various ways to Im- directly image electrical currents and... Uh, it's gone nowhere so far, but uh, you know nobody ever. Um, uh, it's it's generally not a good bet to say that some technology will not exist. Right. right. Um, so I I certainly think that you know a hundred years from now there you know if humans still exist there will probably be a way to non-invasively image you know electrical currents, um, but you know you, you know who knows what the mechanism will be. But um, but for now, for the short term, I think it's pretty important. I want to get back to Nicole's question. So, because I, I, I think you're one of the people who are, who's actually really interested in this. So, how do you accomplish? Is it possible to accomplish like a formal synthesis of all the literature? And, and if so, how do you do it? And what can it tell you? Um, a formal synthesis. Like these meta analyses are really of, of of all the sort of structure and function, right. sort of network level stuff. Right. There are a couple of like big studies, I guess, that have tried to do these meta-analyses, and, yeah. and how successful have they been? How believable have they been? Well, I think, um, I mean, there have been a lot of sort of domain-specific meta-analyses, and one nice thing about them is they, they show you that, you know, imaging does actually work in the sense that it can find reliable stuff. Because replicability was a real issue with, M- with, MR- with FMR. It remains a big issue. Yeah. I mean, it remains a big issue across science, I yeah. think, that, you know, I, I think very few parts of science have taken it really seriously. And, and actually, the fMRI world probably is taking it more seriously than many others. Um, but um, but I, I think you're asking a bigger question, which is how do you go beyond those domain-specific things to ask what's the kind of large-scale structure? And, um, and the, yeah, this is a question that I've been really interested in. And so the way that we've been thinking about it is to um, basically take you know, large data sets, like, and that was actually the motivation for starting the Open fMRI project is because, you know, I, I had a lot of data that we were already trying to do these large-scale analyses on, but I wanted more. And, um, and other people want to share their data, so we built a repository where other people can put data in, anybody can take it out, um, and then, you know, I can play with it all, right? <laughs> so, um, so that's, so it's, it's a win-win-win. Um, and um, so, you know, the way that I think about it is, you know, we as psychologists think we know how the mind is chopped up, right? There's, you know, parts like attention and memory and language and all these different things. Um, but it's pretty clear to me that at least some of those have to be wrong with respect to how the brain actually chops up psychological function. Right? Our, our brains evolved to solve problems out in the world, um, and we've named some of those problems in different ways or, and, and we may have, we may have gotten, you know, the, the reverse engineering right in some ways, but I'm pretty sure that we've got it wrong in other ways. So the question is, you know, if you have a lot of data across a lot of different tasks, can you use some kind of techniques to tell you 
you know, what, how does the brain chop up psychological problems and then see how those relate to how we chop them up? So it may well be that, for example, if you have a bunch of tasks that measure, say, attention and memory, um, that, you know, we think those are different things, or that some people in the field think they're different things. Um, but it might be the case that if you, if you look at, you know, the sort of the large scale space of brain activity, that those things all fall in a very similar part of that space, suggesting that they're really not that different with respect to how the brain chops things up. So that's the kind of question that we want to answer. And there's a lot of tool, there's a lot of tools coming out of machine learning and statistics right now for basically inferring latent structure from high dimensional data. So, you know, taking 200,000 dimensional data like we have with fMRI and basically saying, what are the, what's the low dimensional space that kind of generates these data? And, um, and so, you know, I've been working with, with people at UT to try to apply those sort of methods to fMRI data. Um, you know, I think we're, we're really far away from being able to answer those kind of questions in part because we're really far away from having enough data to get anywhere near the kind of scale we need. Um, because, you know, most people still don't share their data. Um, Why? Because it's hard. I think, one, because it's hard. There's a lot of reasons people don't share their data. But one, because it's, it's just difficult. Um, to share. Size to, and to share. To just transfer it's, it's, huge gigabytes. That's, that's hard, but that's not really hard. What's really hard is actually representing the data in such a way that makes them useful for anyone else. Yeah. yeah. And so we in our project have come up with schemes to try to do that. Um, but, you know, we get data from other labs, and it, we have spent a lot of time kind of, you know, reorganizing those things so that we can give them out and anybody can take them and, and work with them, right? Um, so there's just, you know, if we had one scheme that everybody followed, then it would be easy, but we don't. Um, there's obviously, there's lots of social reasons why people would do or don't share data. Um, one is, I think there's, you know, there's, there's little in, there has been little in the way of, um, of sort of uh, incentives to, for people to actually share data. For a while, you had to, if you want to publish in certain journals, that sort of went away. Um, and now, you know, basically the main incentive is, one, you want to be a good citizen, or two, because you think it's going to give you some kind of special glow. And I think that's actually, that's becoming a, a bigger deal that, because it's becoming clear that um, people who share data are in general probably people who are doing better science. So there's work, there's an interesting paper um, from, uh, I think it was from your Simonson's group that was published uh, last year that basically, um, this was in cognitive psychology, they asked a bunch of people to share their data and like all the papers have been published in some journal. And then they, um, you know, some people did, some people didn't. Then they looked at the papers of the people who had shared their data versus those who didn't, and they found more evidence of objective statistical errors in the papers of the people who had not shared their data. So so there's both a carrot and a stick there. There's the carrot, which is you share your data, and that gives you the glow of being one of the data sharers who's probably more trustable. The stick is, well, if you're not sharing your data, then you're probably one of those people who made more errors, That said, I think, you know, I think most people don't share their data because it's work and there's no payoff. They don't, they don't view it there as being a payoff. I think that they're, that this kind of thing and the, the kind of general increase in sensitivity to reproducibility, sensitivity to openness and these kind of things is... The systems biology markup language kind of, that has been very successful no. uh, in people sharing their data about uh, cellular processes. Yes. And it hasn't well, so I should, I should say that in, in some ways we actually do really well. I've actually recently been playing with um, some sequencing data. Uh. And th 
the file formats there are just a mess, right? There's 10 different formats you have to translate from one to the other to do anything. We're actually in pretty good shape in the sense that we have one file format that almost everybody uses, and they don't all use it exactly the same, but we know how they, in general, we know how they use it differently. And so I think we've actually done a good job there. Where we haven't done a good job is in the markup for actually describing the metadata, right? Describing what you need to know to analyze the data. So the data themselves, I think we do well on the metadata that you need to analyze it and to describe what was done, we've done terribly. There is no markup language. People are working on this, but um, but it just doesn't exist. But it's, a, it's so challenging because, I mean, I, I, well, I have a two-part question. But it's challenging because how do you describe that meta phenomenon? I mean, if you're, it's task-specific, yep. it's, it's population-specific. There's so many factors that right. go into it. Right. It's not really easy to pinpoint as a single factor. Yeah, so the, the way that the strategy that we've taken is basically that you should describe everything that we need to know to run a standard analysis on the data. Obviously, there's lots of stuff we could ask you to do, and it would take you months to even take the time to you know uh, tell me what the temperature was for the day that everybody was scanned and all that kind of stuff. Right? Um, we basically want to know what do I. We want the information that we need to build like an SPM or an FSL model of the data, like basically to do the analyses that you did for the paper if you were publishing it or if, you know, if it's unpublished that you would have to do to, to, for that. Um, and that's, well, you know, most people already have that. If they've analyzed the data, they already have that. It may well be in a different format. It may well be disorganized. Um, one thing that, you know, being involved in this kind of stuff really highlights is the importance of organizational schemes, you know, um, and... Certainly, you know, I came, you know, 10 years ago, I came from a lab where we, you know, everybody organized their data differently um, and, uh, you know, it, it all ended up on somebody's hard drive and, you know, um, there was no control over what things looked like. Um, and certainly my lab has moved way away from that now where now we, you know, have a very strict formatting scheme for all the data. Um, and so that, in part, that's for me because I want to be able to go look at data when the student isn't around and know what they did, know what's where. But also, it makes you know getting things into a format to share much easier. So I, I have one question related to them. So you're looking at actual MRI data um, and in a huge database of actual data. Um, how does that compare to these databases that are being created, meta-analysis databases that are being created based on other people's publications and mapping? function and localization uh, um, yeah. markers? I think that they're complementary. Um, so, the, yeah, I mean, I've been involved in one of those projects, the Neurosynth.org project, the BrainMap project's another big one, and they, I think they've been successful in, you know, sh again, showing us that things are consistent across studies and in telling us something about the overall structure of the literature. I think that they're going to be fundamentally limited at getting at finer details simply because um, there's such a sparse representation of the data. It's like taking 220,000 data points and actually 220,000 times your number of subjects, times your number of time points, collapsing that down into, you know, five numbers, right? Um, and that's just fundamentally has to really limit your ability to do anything. It is a, this is, is another case, though, where it's sort of amazing that it works at all. Yeah. You know, that you can scrunch the data down so much to that little table of activation coordinates, mm -hmm. and then you bring it back out and, and get it exactly, things. you know, what you should. But, I mean, 200,000, it sounds like a lot, right? But but it is solved, for example, the, the sparse matrix algorithm from Google, um, I mean, it does it for millions. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then you yeah. get a ranking, yeah. right? Yeah. 
uh, and it's uh, actually pretty effective. So maybe the tools are proprietary now, right? right. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems that somebody has, uh, now we have at least the computer power, or somebody has the computer yeah. power yeah. To, yeah. to probably not worry too much about like having to uh, simplify your data or to do a lot of uh, um, um, uh, signal uh, processing mm-hmm. before you actually analyze right, the right. computational um, right. structure. And I would argue actually that we're data limited at this point, right? The reason that Google uh-huh. can do so well is because they have so much data to work with. Right. We have, you know, we have these these data that are like, you know, um, wide and short, right? We have lots of variables and very few observations right. across those variables. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just end by talking a bit about uh, phenomics and the sort of neurocognitive uh, approach to phenomics. Right. So talk us through this. So phenomics is an idea that was, I think the term, I don't know if it was coined by my colleague Bob Builder, but he was the first person who I heard say it. Um, the idea being sort of the science of phenotypes. Um, and it's really um, sort of inspired by the idea, you know, we had this, this human genome project, right? And we mapped out, you know, whatever the 2.2 billion base pairs. Um, but you want to know what those things do, and the space of possible phenotypes is, you know, exponentially bigger than that 2.2 billion base pairs, right? Uh, but if we want to understand how, you know, how genetics and you know and experience fit into, um, you know, sort of come together to drive who we are and and you know how we end up with diseases and things like that, then that's it. Seems like you have to understand. What's the space of phenotypes? How do they relate to one another? So the work that, that I did with Bobby UCLA was really focused on um, kind of understanding, you know, within the space of psychiatric disorders, kind of what the overlap is between different disorders, what their distinctions are. And that's work that's still ongoing. We're not really any answers from it yet. Um, but but that, that sort of approach has driven me now to think, you know, I think it, it aligns well with these questions about, you know, what's the real structure of, of mental function in terms of, you know, what are the, the real underlying bases of mental functions and how do they combine with one another? Um, and then how does that relate to the actual behavior that we see on tasks? Right? Because if you think of both of those, I mean, you think of the, the mental structures are sort of like the intermediate phenotypes, what people call endophenotypes, um, that get played out on, you know, many different tasks that are the things we end up measuring. Um, and so we're really interested in understanding, you know, what are really, what are those kind of intermediate things that ramify out into all the different tasks? It seems like a, it seems like a funny, uh, an interesting question, actually, especially related to putting databases together and so forth. It's like, cause you have to organize the experiments that people do, right? So you, you have these, so you can have mental disorders that they're organized in some kind of way. You have these ideas about mental constructs of things like learning and memory and how they've been parsed up. And then they get operationalized in a specific set of experiments that have this idiosyncratic history, right? And it seems super interesting question to organize science, right? Not just the data organization, because yeah. to put it together, you have to organize the questions. Yeah. And... You know, presumably a lot of those tasks are going to have the same kind of missing uh, elements that you interpret this was meant to operationalize this, and it really doesn't, and it really misses the boat based on the same kind of thing that you have yeah. all the analysis. And in fact, so there's a project that we have called the Cognitive Atlas that is meant to go after exactly this question of really getting people to formalize what do they think. So, you know, for a, if you have a bunch of tasks, those are supposed to measure different psychological processes. One, just what are all the psychological processes they're supposed to measure and 
which tasks are supposed to measure which processes, that leads that then provides you with kind of a, a set of expected relationships amongst tasks. And then you can actually go look and say, where, where does that get it right? Where does that get it wrong? Where, and then that could help you find these places where there's a task that really is tapping something completely different than what you think it is. Um, and by looking at its overlap with other tasks, you might be able to intuit those kind of things. So what's the response to that kind of approach? Um, usually, well, the the, I, the true answer is, is probably silence. Right? Most <laughs> people just don't know what to say about it, I think. You know, I think that... Um, that it's so far outside of it, it, it's so far outside of what most people are trying to do with their science, right? And in part, it's it's sort of fundamentally questioning the conceptual framework upon which most people build their science. Or at least it's saying, you know, we want to come and try to you know take the air out of your boat while you're floating around in it, um, or at least you know pull little bits of it off. Um, so I think most people don't know what to do with it. Um, philosophers love it. Uh, but uh, psychologists, I think, in general, have not been strongly interested in playing a big role in it just because it's not clear what it does for them um, other than to tell everybody that what they've been talking about for 100 years is wrong. Yeah. It seems like a huge, I mean, a, a really interesting thing. I mean, the whole idea of calling it phenomics, right? Uh, and this whole idea of, the, of uh, uh, you know, the president going to, you know, map out the brain or, or whatever. The whole, it has kind of scientifically very different structure than the genomic kind of thing, right? So we had this very specific thing. We can map it out. We can map it out first without knowing anything about what it is. Right. And we don't have that. There's the, no organization. There's the no genome is incredibly easy compared to right. uh, what we're trying to do. Right? And so the, it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a cool and interesting open question about taking systematic, that kind of systematicity to answering questions in a big way. I mean, and unfortunately, I think you know there's a there's a scale issue. You have to have enough information there and enough knowledge there to be able to kind of use it to actually um, uh, sort of discover anything, right? And and you're always stuck knowing whether your discoveries are real discoveries or whether they're just noise. And you can't know that without sort of taking whatever your discovery is and going and doing a bunch of experiments with it, you know, to test its implications. Um, and that's, that's where I think it becomes really tricky. That's great. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. This has been Neuroscientist.